Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 968 with Leo Holtzman. My original mentor called it the pie in the sky. You know, so like if you have a restaurant and you're doing double the numbers that you thought you would and you're on a percentage rent, your rent is now also double. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Today's episode made possible by Zinch. For restaurants, large costs can pop up fast, but the traditional loan process is too slow, and that's why you need to know about Zinch. They are a direct lender that makes the financing process quick, convenient, and accessible. Zinch can fund up to $250,000 in less than two days. Just fill out a simple online application and provide a copy of your four most recent bank statements and you can get approved within 24 hours. That's awesome. Right now, Zinch is waiving their application fees for my listeners, a value of $250. Go to financingthatworks.com and get pre-qualified to see how much financing you could get with Zinch. Loans made or arranged pursuant to a California finance lender's law license. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, it, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest back on the show for a second time co-founder, I should say, not founder, co-founder of SoCal Cantina and founder of Cocktail Conjuring Inc., Leo Holtzman. My man, Leo, are you feeling unstoppable today? I, I am feeling unstoppable. Yeah, man. I cannot wait to get back into your story. So if you guys um, recognize this name, Leo Holtzman, it's because he was episode 794. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 794 if you want to get Leo's story, how he got to where he is today. He shares lots of great details. It's a really great episode. Um, happy we connected then and happy we're reconnecting now my second trip to miami uh we're about to dive into what's happened over the past two years but let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra and i think i might be throwing you did you know that was coming i i i should have <laughs> <laughs> as a listener of the show uh so do you need a second to think of one or you got one locked and loaded um i mean i i still believe in the one that i use first now which is uh do it now do it now uh hey sometimes uh, mantra stick around for more than a year, right? Yeah. And once you get a good one, you might as well hang on to it. So do it now and just echo the sentiment of do it now and why that resonates with you. Yeah. I mean, you, you ultimately don't know how things are going to turn out and you can have like, you can do all the planning and, you know, work behind the scenes to see if, you know, what you think is going to happen, but you don't really know until it happens. It's kind of the same as a 
Mike Tyson's uh, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Yeah. So, you know, as soon as you have an opportunity to do something, you should test it out. Yeah. And don't wait for things to be perfect because it's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be just the way you want it to. Uh, and you will never start if you're waiting for things to be perfect. So just do it now. Yeah. And it. Gary V kind of has like the same idea too, you know, where he talks about like people that are doing content and he's like, the most important thing is, is just put out content, good, bad, whatever. Yeah. He's like, by doing, the more you do it, the better it gets. And you know, yeah. you learn all the little intricacies of it and how to make it really happen. Yep awesome way to get this thing started so when we had you on the show uh, paint the picture the year's 2021 uh, february of 2021 i had just come we just interviewed you where were you then paint the picture of where your business was then um yeah so uh the business in miami was kind of uh taking off like we had a 50 percent increase in sales but that's because we had you know miami was a hotbed for everything but yeah. we had new yorkers and californians relocating here um, I think like Brickle, um, which is where the restaurant's located. Um, I think we had like probably we almost doubled our population in like three to four months of that's, residence here. Wow. That's wild. Um, so for a little context, if it's not so obvious, why was, what was going on in 2021 that was making everybody come here? Oh, COVID had closed down the world and, in, and Florida did not really close down. Yes. Yeah, like something about being in this peninsula, like you guys didn't know that what was happening in the rest of the country. <laughs> it's like your little like Island. I think they knew, but just <laughs> didn't care. Yeah. Um, I don't know exactly. Um, and, you know, at the time, you know, we all had different feelings on it. Like, is this the right thing to do? But looking back on it, it probably was the right thing. Why do you think that? Not to get too political, but why do you think it was the right thing to do? Um, there's a, I, I'll put you on the spot. Yeah, really. for sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, right thing might be the wrong word. Definitely right for the business yeah. of the world. But, um, you know, you had all these different pockets of people that were reacting to it differently and you know, we see a lot of stuff coming out about, you know, they were just being overly, uh, not overly safe, but they were, you know, they were t having all these parameters on there and no one really knew exactly what was the right way to go about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, we don't need to make this whole conversation about how we handled COVID. Um, uh, but I mean, definitely what was happening in Florida during the pandemic was from the outside looking in was that like life was just kind of continuing on, but it was great for business because people who were kind of done with COVID just said, let's just go to Florida. Yeah. Well, it wasn't like just, you know, screw everything that they're saying. They still did all the parameters that yeah. all these other restaurants did, but Florida was probably the first one to start all that. Like get to open things back up. Yeah. And, and they, they still had like some confusion. Like there were like you, if you were a bar, you could not open it at all. Um, but if you were a restaurant, you could, and you had to do social distancing and, you yeah. know, we had all the PPE and, you know, we, we did it the right way. Um, as much as we could. And then, you know, there was one time where even we had to close down for like a week because one of our, one of our employees had contracted COVID. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to make the right decision because we yeah. still don't know exactly what to, you know, exactly what all this meant. Um, and so we made sure we got everyone tested and closed down and, you know, we're still part of the community. So yeah. we wanted to let everyone know that we care and we do care. Long story short, you were busy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it was busy. One of your best years ever. If was it your best year? Yeah, by far. Uh, okay. So yeah, we did. We like for the end of the year, we finished at like fifty percent above the year before. Wow, that's wild. So what has happened since? Like, I, I remember speaking to you. You said that your plans were expansion. You had a couple markets in mind. You said they were the best markets. What were those markets? Yeah. Well, so this is uh, not necessarily the best markets, but the best markets we had the opportunity in. You know, um, you know, it's, there's something to be said about. Um, your business has to match, you know, the market, you yeah. know, cause like, you know, I'm sure New York city is probably considered one of the best markets, but I don't really know if our concept would be 
made for everywhere in the city, you know, cause you know, our food's not extremely expensive. Yeah. So there's something to, you know, if we have, you know, if we're selling $4 tacos and next door to us is a steakhouse that's selling hundred dollar steaks, it's going to be easy for them to make that rent agreement. Work. I think generally speaking, the word best is relative. Yeah. And if with everything, the best way to do something, the best at whatever, fill in the blank, it's relative to the person receiving that or doing whatever it is. So like the point you're trying to make is for what we are, the best markets are this because there's like a Venn diagram of like what we do with who wants what we do. Yeah. And we do, you know, we do really high end cocktails and margaritas with, you know, really amazing tacos, but they're not necessarily like it's not necessarily like a culinary destination where we're, you know, we're, we're You're not, still doing the crunch wrap supreme though. Yeah, right? exactly. Okay, good. But that's what I'm saying. It's like lowbrow food, but done really, really well with, you know, high grade ingredients. So we can't, we're not, we're not, you know, we're not going to gouge a guest and charge, you know, $25 for something. So it's still super affordable. The two markets that you mentioned were Austin and Tuscaloosa. Yeah. Are those still markets you're looking to get into? Have you gotten into them? Are you open? Like, where are you? Yeah, we're, we're open in Tuscaloosa. We've been open since October. Okay. Um, awesome. Congrats. Thank you. Um, it, so what I was going to say, it's been a journey though, because we decided to do that and sign the deal a week before the pandemic happened. Yeah. I so remember then that, that. Yeah. So we signed it. I came back, the world shut down and you know, that had a, like a whole slew of problems from build outs and like supply chain issues so it took us, you know, almost two years to build out this restaurant and it, from signing the paperwork to actually having the restaurant finished. Yeah. Yeah. But how much of a delay did 2021 cause as far as like, I'm, I almost feel like it's better. Like you have the, the lease locked in the land, like was the property owner, the, the, old, the owner of the building, like chomping at the bit to like start generating, I mean, you're paying rent, weren't you? Uh, no, well, they're, they're partners in the business as well. So we worked it out to where we didn't really pay rent until we open. And also there, it was only four walls. So there was a lot of work to be done. Okay. So it wasn't really, they couldn't really give us like a start date, you know, like you have to start by this time or whatever, which worked out really well in our favor, especially with, you know, COVID happening. Um, but you know, it was all just contractors, things that you couldn't really plan for. Um, supply chains. Yeah. And I'm I'm really glad that we signed that deal. Had I known that code was going to happen, I definitely would have made that deal, you know, just because it kind of covered our ass. Cause I knew the world, I mean, the world was going to come back to what it was. Yeah. And if it didn't, it didn't matter what I bet on because then everyone was going to lose. Yeah. <laughs> so you, that location is open as we said, October, November, October, October. So you're one to what? Four months in five months in. Uh, yeah. And what's the first five months been like? You just got back a couple of days ago, right? You've been out. Yeah, I've been there for the last eight months. Wow. So I moved up a couple of months before to start like, you know, some pre-work stuff, um, figuring out, you know, who, who the who is of the city. So when we did open, we can open, uh, you know, right out of the gate, which we did. And, you know, we started, um, I mean, our sales are still going up, but, you know, our first week open, we did like 45,000 for the week, um, which was great for that market. Um, and now we're probably like around 50 to 60. Okay. Um, so what happened with Austin? Are there still plans for Austin? Yeah. Um, I, I had found like the perfect spot for it. Um, it was a restaurant that doesn't, um, exist anymore. And the guy that owns the space has like a long lease on it. So we're still working on the deal. He's just, he's got his hand in a lot of, uh, cookie jars. So it's kind of hard to like buckle down and get him to make a deal. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of just waiting on that. Um, and then in the meantime, we actually found another spot in Vegas, which is where we're starting to, uh, kind of pour all our energy into. Okay. Um, and we, we definitely have the ability now to open two, three at a time. 
So let's talk about market selection. Because you, you've pinned these three markets, Tuscaloosa, Austin, and Vegas. We talked a little bit about it already. But like, when you're looking at a market, like what, what things are you looking for? Do you have like a mental checklist? Is it just a gut feeling? What's going on there? Um, I mean, it's all those things for sure. Uh, the first thing it, is kind of like what, what area is available and what the spaces are and what, what the landlords are looking for um, and to see what the competition's like, you know. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean there's eight other taco places. It doesn't mean I'm not going to open. I mean, that's every city right now. <laughs> if you go, to, if you have a taco concept, yeah. if you, you're going to have other taco concepts. There yeah. Well, in, in, well, yeah, but in the specific area, you yeah, know, yeah. like within like the one to two On mile radius yeah. and like in Vegas, there's, there's only like one other really? and it's like a really like traditional Mexican restaurant and we're the exact opposite of that. So I think it'll almost help us. Yep. Um, so yeah, so, you know, you look at the competition and what it's, you know, and what like the flavors of the city are and what they're looking for. Um, also cocktail wise, you know, cause uh, the cocktails of our business is a really big, you know, aspect of it. And in Vegas, there's obviously really great cocktails all in the city, but there's the arts and entertainment district there, which is in between Fremont street and Vegas. And it's kind of like the next place to go up. Yeah. And I know that they have a lot of development projects planned in the future, like residential, because they, you know, Vegas got very popular after the pandemic, probably because, you know, the tax breaks that you get. Yeah. And so they're building a lot more residential there. And so for for our business, I like to really have like 70 percent locals and 30 percent visitors. So I was thinking about that. And when you think when you think Las Vegas, you don't think residential, but. All these, yeah. A lot of people that live there. <laughs> yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised. That market's a growth market, isn't it, right now? That area. The yeah. Midwest in general. Anything that's not on the coast, I feel like, is growing right yeah, now. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Vegas has really blown up uh, a lot. Actually, you've still, I've yet to be to Vegas and uh, all the traveling I've done. Oh, yeah. You, I mean, there's several reasons to go there, but also for <laughs> restaurants and stuff. Yeah. I know, man. I, I got to go. I got to make it happen. Um, so, I mean, if you're. If you're in a market that you like, say the market's Austin or Vegas or Tuscaloosa, like what is an absolute deal breaker for you as far as like looking for a site selection? Like, have you, were there sites that like you were interested in that you didn't end up going with? Uh, yeah, there's actually um, I would would have opened another one in South Florida. Okay, um, but I decided against that. Just which market? All of it. Any so you would so have done it in any South Florida. Market. We would have done West Palm. We would have done Fort Lauderdale. We would have done you know like a smaller Doral or something like that. Um, but with New York shutting down and all, there were all these restaurateurs moving, so there was a ton of competition. Ah. which I wasn't really scared of necessarily the other restaurants opening, but it just increased the rent so much and like the TI and the deals you would get. So you know I I, I still have plans to open more in this area, but I want to make sure that it makes, you know, it makes sense for both of us. You don't want to be in a situation where yeah. you're look, working for the landlord. You want it to be more of a partnership. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you don't want to work with the landlord. You want a partnership. So, I mean, it sounds like the, well, work, work sorry, for the landlord, for the landlord, you want it to be a partnership. And we talked about that before, like getting into deals and, um, get into like your mindset around partnership and, and the, what you're looking for in a partnership when you're, when you're trying to make a deal. Well, I, I mean, for like partnership with landlord, I mean more like, you know, if you, if you sign a bad rent deal where you're paying rent, you know, right away and you don't have any TI, um, what's TI, uh, tenant improvements. Okay. So basically, you know, I'm going to take a lease over your space and I'm going to start to build out a restaurant, but I shouldn't have to pay rent from the very beginning because I'm improving the space that you own. Yeah. So it usually comes in the form of like a, you know, a rent break where, you know, let's say the rent's $10,000 a month and you put in, you know, a million dollars 
they'll give you like maybe maybe up to one to two years of free rent while you build out. Got so it. at least I'm not paying rent and building out your space. Got it. Got it. So, so that's some that's a that that's like a deal breaker for you. You want that TI. You want tenant if you're if you're putting tenant improvement into the property you want a, a runway basically yeah it's, it's i mean in my mind it's only fair because yeah. you know at some time the lease is going to end and like you know if you're just putting decor on the walls and they already have a build out then no but more often than not in order for a restaurant to work well like i want the bar to be where the bar is i want the kitchen to be where the kitchen is and moving all you know the plumbing and the electrical is very expensive um and if you do it in a smart way it becomes an asset for the yeah. landlord so this this current building we're in today in miami um, the person that owns this building, do they also own the property in Tuscaloosa? No, no, no. So this is a different partner. Okay. Yeah. How many different partners you got? Well, I, I not even necessarily partners. So here we do like, it's a, you know, it's a, a, a percentage rent. Okay. You know, so, you know, I say partners in it because they still have a added value, you know, an, an interest in our business Yeah. because the more we sell, the more we rent. So they want us to do well. So there is, you know, a little back and forth and suggestions. How does that, like when you approach a percentage for rent situation like what are the things to consider when doing that like how do you structure that like what is a good structure in your opinion <laughs> the one they agree to <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> um but you know it, it it has to make sense for both sides and you're going to get there um and it kind of depends on where you are you know like moving forward we probably won't do more percentage rents because it makes sense up front if there's no like a uh, bottom to it you know so a lot of times it'll be like, all right, your rent is six thousand or six percent, or something like that. But if you make, if you have a super busy place, exactly, like, yeah, yeah which is kind of what happened here, yeah, you know, which yeah. I'm grateful that we had the opportunity. It was our first location. So is a percentage rent deal better when you're just trying to get started and like you just need to get your foot in the door? Sometimes, yeah, yeah. You know, it really depends on your finances and how build the build, how big the build out is. Yeah. For us though, you know, it's such a small little tiny space. When we first started here, you know, before we built out our the alleyway, we were only, you know, 700 square feet. You I said think we were like six 12 seats. seats. 12 seats or something? Yeah. Like 12, six tables, 12, 12, 12 seats? 12 seats. It's 12 like seats. a bar and one table. So we're, we're in the space today. Um, this room, is this your room or is this part of the other? No, this is like their event room. So they do uh, the uh, the restaurant upstairs does like brunches. How many like restaurants are on this there. property? Uh, currently, there are four. Four restaurants on a property. What's that like? Oh, I mean, um, <laughs> it takes a lot of, uh, um, I can't really think of the word, but it, patience. It, it, yes, patience is one of them. Um, but you know, we, we have two dish pits, <laughs> yeah. you know, so it's kind of working on that. So you have to like train all the individual like dishwashers of what goes where, and then you yeah. have to kind of create your own systems. Um, it's, you can't really, you know, maybe if it was like a food hall, you could have more of a system for it, but really you have to kind of have each person take care of their own stuff. And be responsible for it because if you have, you know, a, an hourly employee that's trying to like manage four different ones, it's just never going to work. Yeah, yeah. So your your seats go along the side of the building, basically. Mm -hmm. So you have this alley um, along the I guess south side of the building. Yeah, and that's where you added the additional seats outside. Yeah, got it, got it. Yeah, it used um, to be two parked cars, and now it's seventy five seats. Wait, two parked cars? You fit 75 seats and were two parked cars? Well, it didn't go back all the way. Like okay. It was just the driveway, and then we just ate up all this area. Got it. Um, okay, so we're, we were originally talking about partnerships. Uh, we're talking about how this is a percentage um, partnership and how it was. it's a good partnership 
setup if you're new and you're looking to get your foot in the door into if somebody's taking a risk on you, right? Yeah. Um, but going forward, you rather not do those those types of partnerships. Yeah, if you, if you believe in your concept, because yeah. it's called you know the theory is like um, my original mentor called it the pie in the sky. You yeah. know, so like if you have a restaurant and you're doing double the numbers that you thought you would and you're on a percentage rent, your rent is now also double. Double, yeah. So is there a scenario, I feel like there would be like, like clearly as the tenant, or the tenant, but the landlord, you're, you're going to be driving people out of your space if you do that, right? Because you, I feel like that's a good like entry in. And then once you, if you, if you pull in enough revenue consistently over time, I would see if you have a good anchor like tenant, you'd want to keep them around, right? Yeah. Um, you can, I mean, so, I mean, this building's unique because it's owned by, um, it's owned by the city. So they're on a percentage rent. So it gets passed down. So it kind of has to work that way. Is there like a advice for like terms, like percentage rent for like the first two years? And then if this, then we, yeah, I mean, is that common? Yeah. Uh, usually what it is, it's like a min and a max, but you know, also we're in a very hot area so they can pretty much ask for whatever they want because you know, we're, we're busy seven days out of the week. Yeah. I mean, this, this is a lot. I don't get into a lot of these details. Like you can tell, cause I clearly probably don't know exactly what I'm talking about right now, but that's why I'm here is to learn from people like you who are doing it and like what things to look out for and like what, what is a good deal? What isn't that? Like when does it make sense to take a deal, deal like that? Like when you're getting started, you yeah. know? Um, I mean this, this deal is definitely not common. Um, I do know like in Vegas, there's another, uh, a landlord that has a lot of spaces and he only does percentage rents, but he does, a minimum. So it's like, you must pay at least, you know, I think it's like $3,000 a month or 10%, whichever is higher. And there's no cap. Got it. So, which is a lower percentage. So, you know, sometimes it can work out in your favor, but he also has like a sales, um, program where if like, if you don't, if you don't sell this much after the first year, you get kicked out. Mm. Got it. So back to Tuscaloosa. Um, what was it about Tuscaloosa? What is it about that market? Cause that's a market you don't hear that often. Austin, Texas, we know that's an exploding market. Yeah, I Las mean, Las Vegas. We know that's an exploding market. Tuscaloosa. It, it wasn't even on our radar, to be honest. Um, but we had a so our, our partners in that that own they own the building and they're also partners in the business. Um, they were on a trip in Miami for another one of their businesses, and they came by SoCal and they were really impressed with the food and drink. And they're like, "Man, this would do so well in Tuscaloosa." So they came to us and brought it up, and you know, we went up there, checked everything out, and I. I saw the future. Yeah. It made sense. You know, like I think we're probably the best restaurant in Tuscaloosa. So what is like paint the picture of Tuscaloosa? Like what is that market? What is it that is appealing about this market for you in your concept? Yeah. So you got a couple things there. You have the, it's the university of Alabama. Um, so you have, you know, 60,000 plus students that are there. And then you also have all the faculty and then, you know, just like a lot of other college towns, it's building up to become a city. Right. So I think they put something like, I don't know, 50 million into like the city, like the city has to just like the, um, infrastructure, the infrastructure and everything. Um, and so there's, and more people are starting to go there and, you know, I kind of call Alabama the 33rd, uh, NFL team, you know, for what their following is. So they'll have tons of people that come in town for the games. So Alabama, Auburn, right? Mm. Auburn. What Uh, schools in Birmingham? Is Birmingham? No, Birmingham is, um, it, is I think it's just, Al- uh, I forget the name of it right now, but it, it's just, it, it's another university, but it's not very major. Yeah. I'm just trying to remember. Uh, UAB maybe. 
I know that's a big Birmingham. Um, that that area is a big um, college town too. Tuscaloosa is the University of Alabama. Yeah, I mean Birmingham's more of a you know they Birmingham actually has a really great food scene too, but they have you know they have a lot more going on in the city. Like their downtown is much bigger. Got Tuscaloosa it. is kind of still in its growth. You know, there's probably I want to say like 50 restaurants in like the part of uh, Tuscaloosa that we're in. Whereas in Miami, you know, we have 300 restaurants in one mile radius. Got it. So it's, it has your market, the people like I, and when I think of your concept, SoCal, um, Cantina, like heavy on the alcohol, uh, you guys put a lot of focus on the alcohol. Your food's amazing too, but it's also, I think it's like, it hits that, that market of a younger people really like tacos. And it's, is, is would you say younger people is your demographic? Um, that's what I would have said before we open. Yeah. <laughs> but so we, we're actually probably more at like a 60, 40 split. Okay. And I would say 60% are not students. Yeah. I mean, which is kind of a surprise to me. And yeah. we're, we're also doing way more food up there. Wow. So it's actually like, you know, we do about 65% beverage in Miami and then up in Tuscaloosa, it's closer to 60% food. Oh, wow. Awesome. So is that good news or bad news for you as far as profitability goes? Um, it's good. It's, it's news. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting in Alabama because we, we can't, our drink prices are a little bit lower for what the market is because we're doing high end cocktails, but at the end of the day, people are going to compare us to other places, Yeah, you know? So yes, we're doing a red bell pepper margarita and next door is doing a vodka soda, but we still can't, you know, charge 14, $15 a cocktail. Are you, do you think that might be an issue for you or your, your product might be too elevated for the market? No, I think, as people are addicted to our drinks, I think yeah. once they have them, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of like a theory I have in, um, the hospitality it goes novelty, luxury, necessity, right? So first something's a novelty, it's kind of interesting. And you're like, Ooh, you know, it's kind of like when, um, four seasons first started doing uh shampoos, right? They, they would give you free shampoos in the bathroom. And then eventually it became a luxury where all the luxury brands had to do it. So you had all the Ritz Carlton's and then all the Marriott's and then it became a necessity where now you go to motel eight and that's even what it is. Yeah. And cocktails are, you know, a cocktail definitely tastes better than a vodka soda. And the the majority of people are going to prefer that. So I think in the long run, that's kind of, you know, and it kind of already has happened. You know, there was a time when sports bars didn't have cocktail menus and now they all do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, there's so much we can talk about when we talk about markets. Um, what else is it about Tuscaloosa that you think is right for your concept or things that you didn't consider going into that market that was different for you from coming from Miami? Yeah, I mean, I think for us, it was just, you know, our our partners were, you know, we had a lot of respect for them as far as businessmen. And then so we went there and we looked at it and there was only one other taco spot. And like, so in Miami, there's competition everywhere. And then in Tuscaloosa, there was really only one other spot that you could even compare us to. And I unequivocally thought we were better across the board. Um, also a different style of restaurant, right? They're, they were more like counter service. And then they bring the food to your table and we're more full service. Um, and vibe wise, you know, like my brother is a great designer. Um, he, he did all of our plans. And I knew that we would be kind of like the place to be. And that's pretty much exactly what happened. Yeah. Um the thought that I had before was these markets uh, like Tuscaloosa, I think it's the smaller to medium sized cities where the opportunities are now. Would you say that's true? This idea that those are the, the market. Like what, I mean, Miami is a big market. Las Vegas is a big market. Austin's becoming a bigger and bigger market every day. Um, is there like a, a, a size of a city that you think is ideal as far as like for growth opportunity? Um, 
I, I don't think so. I think, um, I, I, you know, cause even in a city, you not, not everyone's going to be driving 30 minutes to go check out a restaurant. So you're kind of serving the community in like a three to five mile radius. So if you look and even if you look in Miami right now, there's areas that are not what Brickell and South Beach are. So I think you just kind of find them. But I do think that there's something to be said for, you know, me and my partner talked about going to like maybe some other SEC school areas because I think the same thing that we did in Alabama would happen in other spots. The same thing that we did in what exactly would happen in other spots? Oh, so we just came in at a price point that everyone could still afford. Maybe yeah. it was a little bit more expensive drink wise, but we offered such a you know such an amazing vibe top and better. really good quality yeah. food and drink that people it it wasn't a hard decision for them to decide to spend two three more dollars an item in order to have that experience. People spend that money to go not just to get the better experience, but also to be seen at the better spot. Yeah, and Pe- there, and there, there there's a fine line between that because at the same time, I think you know we have some um, restaurant groups here that are great. Like David Grutman does an awesome job on a lot of his stuff, but it's so over the top and so expensive that no one would go there twice because they're not going to drop $150 a person. Well, that's a good point. City. There's not many cities like Miami out there that bring people from around the world for one time, or maybe like it's like the spot that you go to like, go like it's your favorite spot to go visit like occasionally. And you have your, your spots that you're going to go to while you're there. But I mean, 80% of our revenue comes from 20% of our guests, most of us, right? Um, do you think there's something going on in the world right now where a lot of like the, the restaurants that focus on the, the, the regulars are trying to compete with like the, the Davids of the world, the, the David Grutmans of the world who are just doing these so over-the-top, outrageous, experiential concepts? Well, I mean, I think there's a place for it, but I think it probably gets more... Um it takes up more space in everyone's eyes than you think because you have Instagram and all this, but there's a lot of people that haven't been to those restaurants, you know? So that kind of becomes like, you know, the bees knees of what there is, but that's not the restaurant people go to every day. And then for, for our business, we actually don't follow that 80, 20 model, you know, like for a lot of business, it is like, you know, 20% of my, you know, clients are 80% of my revenue. But for us, you know, I would say, you know, our average ticket or the average spend per guest is probably like $35. So the average person here is getting one taco, one drink. I mean, you know, one set of tacos and one drink. And then maybe it, some some people are getting, you know, just tacos and no drinks. And then other people are just getting drinks. So it evens out. Yeah. So I would say, you know, we're I think we're pretty equal across the board. I would say in Tuscaloosa, though, because we do have some underage kids. So those people are just coming for the food or for our elixirs, which are obviously less expensive. Wait, so so you're, you're serving food to... The, the miners and you have elixirs or which are your non-alcoholic drinks yeah okay got it um so you have more of that in tuscaloosa yeah and i, I don't think elixirs are a huge huge push um I, I think most of them are probably just getting a soda and tacos but i'm just saying like you know some guests will come in and they'll spend 20 to 25 dollars and others will spend 40 to 45 which brings your average in that got 30 it. range what about the world of uh, the mocktails is that something that you're paying attention to? Yeah. Uh, I paid attention to it and like, you know, we have it. Um, I think it's probably more important for cocktail bars that don't really do food as kind of a focus. Um, just because, you know, there is, you know, I guess people do feel a little awkward if they're just having, you know, soda water with a splash of cranberry to kind of fit in or whatever. Yeah. And then you do have some of these mocktails that are, you know, they're really getting to be, you know, 
flavor bombs, I guess. You know, like I went to this place in Austin called Roosevelt Room and they had like three mocktails and it was just when it was like starting to like the idea was surging and I tried them and they were awesome. And yeah. sometimes you don't want to drink. So you still want to have an option. Yeah. And for, I think something's happened last year is where um, people value experience over everything else. So I think when I was in college, no one would ever think about spending $13 on a mocktail. But t- today it seems like that kind well, of the culture is changing too. fewer and fewer people are drinking as much as they used to. And more people are trying. They, they like that social aspect. They want to go out. They want to have a drink, but they don't want to have alcohol. But they want, like you said, they don't want to feel like a weirdo, like having water or soda. Yeah. Well, everyone else is like ordering these fancy things. Yeah. Uh, and, pe- and people appreciate flavors yeah. and food more than they ever have. For sure. I know there's a whole segment of just like non-alcoholic alcohol, like, or like mixers, essentially like non-alcoholic, yeah. like, like uh tequilas and that's a little interesting to me i don't um i don't know if i fully bought in it because now you're making a mocktail with i don't know because you can do it with juices and everything else and so i I like their seed lip and whatever and i've had a few of them and they're good but i don't necessarily know if uh i'm about that yet i mean i do get i mean from an operational standpoint to order say like non-alcoholic um bourbon or tequila or whatever vodka whatever your alcohol is that can't be cheap yeah exactly you're like that's that's my whole point you're just so i'm just like you're just putting in you know you can make that flavor in other ways yeah and you don't have to like i mean i I see like the the allure of it like it's it's interesting so people like oh there's like non-alcoholic whiskey in here like i want to see what that tastes like but if i can order it again or can you get that same flavor profile without having a super expensive ingredient in there just to make people feel like they're still drinking alcohol yeah exactly it's a weird time yeah for sure um all right i think now's a good time to take our first break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back to talk about what actually happened uh, with the, the build out of tuscaloosa the lessons you learned Today's episode made possible by Zinch. When you're a restaurant owner, a lot can happen suddenly, and the unexpected can be expensive. For example, when you're short-staffed during the busy month, you can't delay hiring, and the slower season still comes with bills to pay. You need Zinch. When the appliance breaks down or a new location needs equipment and you have to work fast to keep the kitchen running smoothly, you need Zinch. You don't have time to wait around for the traditional loan process to get the cash you need now. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Zinch, a direct lender that gets businesses like yours. Since 2004, Zinch has made the financing process for small and medium-sized business fast, flexible, and inclusive with easy-to-understand solutions. If your restaurant is generating $10,000 in monthly revenue and has been in business for over six months, Zinch can fund you up to $250,000 in less than two days, so much faster than the traditional lenders. To apply, just fill out a simple application form and provide a copy of your four most recent bank statements. It's that easy. No drawn-out paperwork to keep track of and no lengthy waiting to see if you qualify. You'll get a response from Zinch within 24 hours. Plus, Zinch's specialists are just a phone call away. They'll guide you through every step of the way to help you choose the terms that best fit your business needs. 
Save yourself the stress of financing through the bank and apply for Zinch. Right now, Zinch is waiving application fees for my listeners, a value of $250. Go to financingthatworks.com to get pre-qualified and to see how much financing you can get with Zinch. Don't wait. Go to financingthatworks.com today. Loans made or arranged pursuant to a California finance lender's law license. We're back. Um, so let's talk about this this build out. So you guys had the Tuscaloosa location before the pandemic. Yeah. So these uh, your partners must have came to SoCal Cantina. Was it a different restaurant or this restaurant that sold them? It was this restaurant. How long were you guys open before the, the pandemic? It wasn't that long, was it? Uh, we opened in 2016. Oh, okay. so, so you had a good run. Yeah, we had a good run. That's right. Um, so like we, we were actively looking for the next thing. So at what point? did the pandemic allow you to like start making moves with this location? Like when did it make sense for you to start focusing on the build out in Tuscaloosa? Well, I mean, you know, the first thing you do is design the space, you know, which takes two to three months, you know? So we had to do all that. Um, and then we had already had our contractor picked out, um, because the building was going to be another bar before and the, the guy had pulled out. So it kind of left the contractor like, you know, just, with his hands open and kind of like, all right, kind of got screwed on this deal. So we ended up having him come in and help out. And yeah, so then we just started doing the build out on it. But the problem was, is that what happened right after the pandemic was there was just an influx of all this business that was put on hold, I guess. And so our contractor, along with everyone else, like we experienced this in Miami too. Like it's very hard to get even just a handy guy that has time to come by and like do stuff. So we end up doing a lot of the work ourselves. Yeah. And so this contractor had his hands on a lot of different projects and there were only so many electricians and so many plumbers to go around that everything just took so long to do. Cause I really thought we would have been able to open by, you know, mid 2021 and it didn't happen till well, the supply chain too, which I'm sure didn't help. Yeah. That, it, it was, it was always those. It was just like a perfect storm of all that stuff from supply of labor and materials and, and the cost of it too. Yeah. Yeah. Like there was, um, there was a time when we tried to get a, uh, when we ordered our restaurant equipment and the lead time on one of our, the, the type of fryer that we wanted was 26 weeks. Jesus. Yeah. But it, we ended up, or, we ended up ordering a different one, but it wouldn't have mattered because we had issues with, you know, getting an electrician and everything in there that it, the fryer still would have gotten there in time. <laughs> oh my goodness. So what was your biggest challenge with, you, with this, with this build out that just blindsided you the things that like made you a better restaurateur because of it? of these experiences? Um, I would, I would, I would have hired a, a construction manager that, or I would have been out there the whole time. Cause there were a few things that were on the plans that didn't make it to the end of it. And now we're having to go back and fix all that. Oh, and like what? Timely and fixing. Um, the biggest thing would be, it's called the trench drain. So it's a drain that you put like under your ice machine. Yep. So, and you know, it's, staff is going to miss ice buckets sometimes. Yeah. And when those ice, it just creates like a puddle of water and it creates like a mess and having a trench drain would have fixed all that. Um, so yeah. And then, you know, there's just, there's so many issues in like construction. So we also had in our kitchen, we had floor drains, but where they put all the equipment in and it's a really older building. So the floor bevel just a little bit like a centimeter or so, but it just kind of changed where the, uh, the, the stagnant water would go. Oh man. So we had like a little puddle. So we had to go, we're going to have to go in and like redo. And it, I mean, it's not the end of the world. I, our, it just takes our staff a little bit longer to close up at the end of the night, but we want to make sure that we put the drains in the correct space after the fact. So 
it's an easier restaurant to work at. So you would have planned to be there more and have a presence with the build out to make sure things are going the way you want them. What else would you have done? Yeah. Or, or even with our contractor, like, um, ultimate, like he, he was he, like the, the restaurant's beautiful, but there was a lot of those little small things I didn't see. So I, I would probably have a, a, either more, um, a more organized system for our contractor. So every project there was pictures and every time they did a build out, it was more structured. But like I said, it was kind of a product of COVID because it was when they could get, you know, the subcon- subcontractors in. Yeah. And this is the first restaurant that you actually get to, like, design as far as, like, make it yours from, yeah. like, build out to, like, the very end of the process. Um, how did that change things for you moving into the space? Were you How are you trying to ele- elevate the experience, whereas in different spaces you didn't have that luxury because you didn't have the, the control of the build out? Um, well, so like, like here, how did you improve SoCal Cantina? Yeah, here it's, there? it's very different cause we've had to create systems to be efficient because yeah. you know, it's four restaurants under mm-hmm. one roof. So I can't really move walls and all that. Yeah. So here it's, you know, the, the service well and the, and the, and the expo kitchen line are about 10 feet apart, you know? So it's really easy to have a runner kind of help out with both. And for one manager to see the drinks coming out and the food coming out to keep a better eye on it to make sure the quality's up there. Yeah, you mentioned that Stephanie Robson uh, episode. If you guys have not checked out that restaurant, that kitchen design episode with Stephanie Robson, so awesome as far as build out. Just like little things you don't consider as far as flow and like like where does the food come in? Where does it move to? Like do you have a straight line from like the back door from the office? Like all these like little details that you just don't consider until you have tens of tens of years of experience yeah well and then there was one thing from that that uh made a lot of sense but she said you want 25 to 30 percent of your restaurant space to be dedicated to the back of house and just using that metric lets you know that you have enough you know and um so that that's one issue i probably made our kitchen a little too small yeah um so it works and it's what, a fi- what it's, percentage would you say it's like 20 um 15 probably 15 yeah um, but we do have a downstairs where we are able to do like a lot of dry storage and stuff so if you count that, probably like 20%. And to be honest, I had it designed ideally, but you know, when we started doing it, they, we have an upstairs and they wanted to put a bar there and we didn't find this out until halfway through the build out process. But in order to make the upstairs a bar, we had to put an elevator in uh. and we also had to like get reinforced steel to make it so we could have uh, you know, the 150 pounds per foot for like an assembly. Like I am all for equality um especially you know if you're a special needs person if you need to be able to to access things do you think that the state takes it too far sometimes because does your average restaurateur have the budget to build an elevator no they don't but yeah (laughs) i i I think they do probably take it too far for for a lot of stuff you know like i mean no one no one should feel like they're not welcomed in a restaurant so you need to make sure that it's accessible to all um, yeah, but there's a, there should be some other ways to go about it. But I mean, if you want to talk about governments and cities, like you still have to get a three sink in every single bar that you have, even though that we all use, um, you know, eco lab dishwashers. Yeah. You know, so it's like the regulations it just don't takes, keep up with the times. It just takes up space. Yeah. And yeah. then, and then sometimes there's different rules depending on who you get. Like, you know, you have to have an ADA bar. You know, where it kind of like ruins the design of a bar because you have now this one. What's an ADA bar? It's just an accessible bar. So it's, you know, you've, you've seen it. Usually it becomes like the restaurant service well, but it's where the bar dips below. So if someone was in a wheelchair, they could just roll up and go to the bar. Because otherwise, if they go up to a regular, you know, a 42 inch high bar, 
they're just kind of looking at like, yeah. their eyes are level with that. And it, obviously they can't hang out there. Right. Um, but there is, you know, there's a, they make like these, uh, shelving units that can flip up and down so it could be accessible or not. And that would be, you know, and sometimes the city will allow for that. And sometimes they won't, there's really no rhyme or reason to it. So it makes it a little hard in like the design phase. Yeah. Um, I mean, what's the, what's the solution to that? Do you think? Um, if cities would pitch in for the cost, if they're going to not even pitch in for the cost, but come up with, you know, things that are fair to all, you know, that don't add a, 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 a burden, a, a burden of cost or a burden of design to the entrepreneur because no one, like no one's trying to exclude anyway. Yeah. You know, it's great that they have that, but there's probably like a little bit of a better fine line. But I mean, I can go on about issues with that. Also, like there's different plumbing, um, codes for every single city. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually reminded by a past guest. I think it was 50, um, or 30, 30 hop was a past guest or Eric who had that same issue with the elevator. They wanted a rooftop bar and then they realized that they needed an elevator and they're like, crap. Uh, but these are the things that like you just don't consider. You start building out a bar up top and then you get the word that you can't have this without the elevator. Yeah. What, so, what do you do with that space after? Well, we built an elevator. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that elevator ate up, you know, about three, 400 square feet of our kitchen space. What if it's like private, private events? Do you still need the elevator for private events? Um, I don't think I can make a blanket statement on that. I think it would depend on the space or the state, you know, but it, it was also cause we were doing new build out cause you can get grandfathered in if it's existing. Yeah. You know, um, so it's, since it's new, it's, it's a whole new building or cause the frame was there. The, it was just a frame, but there was, okay. there was no business there for Got 10 it. years. Got it. And, and we also changed, it was, it was going to be apartments. So if it was a condo or apartment and they, we built it out that way you wouldn't have needed an elevator. Yeah. So but, what was the, what was the biggest challenge would you say during this build out? The biggest thing that that hit you the hardest, the thing that you wish you knew, information, knowledge you had that you didn't have that you wish you had going into it that you now have. I mean, it's more of like death by a thousand cuts than yeah. one specific thing, I would say. Um so I can't really like boil it down to like one little thing. So you're saying death by a thousand cuts. Are you saying that, that this is a project that has you concerned? Oh no, 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 okay. no, not at all. Just, I, I just meant like, you know, it's, a little, you, know, you, you get like one little down. paper cut and you're like, okay, that's easy yeah. to fix. But it's just like, there's so many little things that, that happened that we, we had to figure out on the spot yeah, and things like that. And you know, there'd be st- stuff as like supply chain issues. Like we made it this design for this restaurant and then one of, you know, one piece of tile wasn't going to come in for a year and a half. <laughs> And so we had to make that adjustment and it was just a bunch of those kind of things like, and I'm sure that always happens in construction projects, Yeah, but it felt like it was probably more just compounding yeah, than anything else. So you were going to build, um, you did build a bar upstairs. You put the elevator in, um, well, no, we, we have, we, we, we've only framed out the bar so far, but we just, we knew that's what we were going to do that. We wanted to do that. So we had to go ahead and put that elevator in there. Like the elevator is there and it's working, but it's not on Mm -hmm. because we don't need it to be on yet. So it doesn't need to have any power to it. Yeah. So it's just sitting there for when we do finish the build that upstairs. Got it. So any other like, Examples like the one you just dropped on us with the elevator, things like lessons that you just didn't like know until you knew because it was. Mm. Well, uh, so th- there, there was one other little thing where um, our grease trap was originally planned to be on the outside patio. Okay. And then um, the city had 
uh, different regulations for that. So we ended up having to enclose that area. So it just became part of the building. So we just extended the building out. So our grease traps now inside, which is not ideal. Um, so there's going to be a time when we got to drain it where it's going to be a rough day. Yeah. Um, so it's just things like that. It's just like planning there. And then, um, I would say probably the biggest thing is when you create the plan, stick to it a hundred percent when you're doing like a build out and which is probably impossible to do anyway. Well, especially when all of your plans start to change because the supply change issues. Exactly. But like, you know, with all those plans, like we should have gone back and maybe like, but it would have taken even longer, but like maybe done like a full redesign and really thought about all those things in place because a few things just got like dropped off and it's really not the end of the world. Like the restaurant's beautiful. It's running really great overall. It's just these little tiny things that we still got to work on and fix. Awesome. So, and my, my brother is an architect and he goes and he told me, he's like, this happens at every project. Yeah. So maybe it's a normal thing. It's not easy to build a building. Well, There's it's like, so many is every night of service like perfect? No, it's exactly. a restaurant. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, it's I like, t- how do you roll with those punches? And yeah. I'm sure it's the same with building out a restaurant or any building. Exactly. And yeah. I, I tell our staff that all the time, you know, yeah. I was like, I don't care about having a perfect day ever. Yeah. I was like, I want to hear about all the problems so we can fix them in the long run. Mm-hmm. You know, I want the perfect average day. Yeah. So, um, with this, with this bill that you opened in October, 2022, um, what was it like? I'm sorry. Say it again. The, the, the Tuscaloosa build out 2022, mm-hmm. October, uh, six months ago or four months ago, whatever it was. Um, you open your doors. Was it different than like, what was the, the experience like opening day? Oh, opening day. Yeah. I mean, we, since we were, it's a smaller town. And since we were there ahead of time and we were going and we were, you know, we were, we knew a couple of the bar owners already because our partners are locals in that area. So we met everyone and everyone was super excited about us opening and it kept getting pushed back. Yeah. So we, me and my business partner, when we go around town, we were already known as the taco guys. So we opened, you know, we did three friends and families. Um, and we probably had like, probably invited like 75 people. And we probably had like 125 show up. Wow. So like word just got out or whatever. And like people just showing up. The yeah. My, my partner was like, he's like, what do we do? And I was like, we let them in. Yeah. <laughs> like, let's, let's just build the excitement and get yeah, it going. Right. So we, we like right out of the gate, we were busy. Yeah. So there, there wasn't like, a, I mean, we're still building and growing and you know, I'm sure there's still people that don't know that we're there yet, but it, it was different from what I thought. I thought it was going to be more of a slow burn which was kind of what we did here because we did it as a pop-up, right? We only had 12 seats, so we could only feed 12 people at a time. And then we just grew slow and steady. And this was like, we open, we're busy. Yeah. Um, And we did it without like a marketing or PR agency. How'd you handle it? Just word of mouth, our our own Instagram. Um, We also do some like fun guerrilla marketing stuff. We do this thing called Pocket Tacos. Okay. So once we open, uh, me and my partner will just take tacos, like street files, format tacos and we'll just wrap them up and put them in our pockets and we go around town to all the bartenders and we just hand out pocket tacos from socal <laughs> nice um i love that though that gorilla marketing is the best just getting out there and just talking to people and the best marketing is food and mouths like if you get your food in, into people's mouths like that's the best marketing yeah and, and establishing that relationship also that's a cool experience like you're like i got like this taco from this place like random randomly got fed while yeah. I was serving somebody, you know, that's, I think that's funny. Um, did you guys get hit? Was it like, was there a bad experience with having too much volume too early? Did your team handle it well? Um, there were a few nights on, um, on service that obviously didn't go exactly how we expected, you know, but when you have, 
we have a really great training program. I would say that's probably like one of our best strengths. So like all of our bartenders were lightning fast and really good. And then our kitchen was really on point. Our food quality was there. But when you're just, oh, this is another thing that we weren't really prepared for is in Miami, we're busy for eight hours. In Tuscaloosa, we do like 85% of our sales in three hours. Wow. So we were just madhouse all the time. Like we were on an hour wait. And so, you know, we had some ticket times that hit 45 minutes to an hour. But I mean, I really don't know how to, you know, I guess we could have controlled the door and just said no to more people, but we wanted to bring more people in. And so we just explained to them. And I'm sure we got nigged for a couple of reviews here and there. But yeah, that's going to be frustrating on a soft opening, friends and family, people giving you bad reviews. Oh, on that, no. I, I meant when we actually opened. Because oh, okay. once we opened the doors, like, you know, we were doing like four to 500 covers a night sometimes. Oh, that's wild. And like I said, 80% of that coming in seats? three hours. It's 134 seats. Okay. So that's, you know, that's turning and burning. Yeah. That's like one hour turn times. Yeah. That's a lot of production to be coming out of, you know, our kitchen and yep. our bar. Yep. Um, I, I almost like that slow burn of a per, the first, like when you guys opened here with six seats, um, sometimes you need the cash flow. Sometimes you don't have the option, the luxury of opening slowly because you need to start paying off the bills from like the build out and hiring people and keeping people on staff for like months before even being open. Right. So I get that. It doesn't work for everybody. Um, you have your expenses and if you could be making, if you could be filling your seats and doing two turns with 150 seats, then like, why wouldn't you give yourself that? But I, I, but that if you're just getting started, like you did here in this location and you, you just slowly, you open up under the radar and it's not about filling up right away, but it's about bringing people back. Right. What are your thoughts as I'm saying this? Yeah. Um, it depends on what works for you. I would, I would, like I said, like eventually you're going to get that busy. And like, if you're, if you train your team to be able, you know, to do that slow burn, like there's going to be a point, a tipping point where they're not ready for it. You know, like this has happened in, you know, in our first location routinely because we would do, you know, our sales would double every once in a while and you don't know that you can handle it until you handle it. Mm-hmm. and you don't really know what systems to put in place until it happens. So yeah. like, you know, that's usually what happens when you create new systems is like the last one didn't work because it was designed for less production or you didn't even know that production was possible. Yeah. And so you come up with a solution for that problem. Were there systems that you had implemented here that you transferred there that didn't work? Um, actually the opposite. So we had a new, um, we have a great GM over there and, you know, I empower them to do a little bit, you know, change a few things here and there. And it, it wasn't bad, but we ended up kind of going back to some classic things that we do here that work really well. And some of them are small is like, we just have, you know, we have like three key group chats for all the front of house, all the back of house and all the managers. And when we, you know, we tell our employees, like it's not for talking back and forth or wishing happy birthdays. It's just so we can communicate things. So it's kind of like a universal pre-shift. Yeah. So if we want to change one aspect, everyone sees it right away. And so when we, you know, if someone comes in and they haven't been to work for two, three days because they were off, you can just, they can go back to that and look at the last three messages and they're like, oh, okay, this is the new format for what we're doing for waters or, you know, this is our special. So, um, and we didn't do that at first because they kind of want to handle it all, but it, I think it worked out really well. So they did not do that first at Tusco. They were trying, um, we put it all on a message board in our, um, um, scheduling system. Got it. And which made sense that it could work, but I mean, it's just 
the habits weren't there. Yeah. I think it's just, you know, you, you look at your text messages all the day. You don't necessarily look at your schedule all the time. Yeah. You're not going to pull the app open. Yeah. You might have the notifications turned yeah. off. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so anything we haven't discussed as far as what the, the past two years has been like with your Tuscaloosa opening or the highs, lows, lessons learned. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I would say the bit oh, a big one for us was, um, food distributors going into this area. So we going into Tuscaloosa. Yeah. So, you know, our, our kitchen was a little smaller and then we also were used to Miami where we get seven day delivery and that is not really a thing in uh, Tuscaloosa. Like all the big boys, they only give you three days. And when we, you and when we're pumping out, you know, ten fifteen thousand dollars of food a night, the three days didn't really cut it. So we had we had to get we used Cisco and U.S. Foods, and we had you know we kind of asked for different days for them. So we still got six day delivery, but you get slightly different product, you know, and they deliver at different times. That was kind of like a big headache. Um, and we we found a local distributor that we're switching to that's been really great, and they actually they agreed to uh, deliver six days. So six days that's you get you place your order and you have six days to get it. No, no, no. You you can place an order every night. Oh, so okay. I get so you have six right. days delivery. So I place the order at three. I get it the next day at six a.m. Got it. So whereas up in that market you have three day delivery. So yeah. So you get Monday, Thursday, Saturday. Got it. So I mean, it's basically just the, the what. What's the major difference for that? Is it just the demand in Miami is outrageous? Probably because the clientele wants things tomorrow that you. I think demand, and I think it's just everything because you like you you know most restaurants in Tuscaloosa probably have more space, but like I said with that elevator thing, that we had less area in our um, um, we had less area in our kitchen, so our walk-ins not huge, so we we can't really even hold on to enough food to sell for three days. Got it. How did you deal with that? Was it like? How do you even like change the, your operations around that? Yeah. Um, a little bit of moving around coolers and getting yep. some more low boys and figuring that out. And then, I mean, the, the but the biggest fix was finding a, a vendor that could give you six days. Yeah. And just finding two vendors is what you did is to be able to alternate and get and, more regular. Well, which was a nightmare. So now we switched to just one that we use which for one six days. Uh, it's, it's this company called Benny Keith. Okay. I've heard great things about so, that company. Yeah. They're great. They're, we, our, uh, our rep is awesome. They're super helpful. So, which, you know, I've heard a lot of people say that about kind of like the bigger distributors yeah. is, you know, they lose touch cause they're just such these big operations. Yeah. And to be honest, the quality, some of the quality of uh, produce and stuff we're getting is actually better now. Really? So with Ben O'Keefe, are you able to keep the same level of consistency across concept or across the locations? Yeah. Okay. I mean, definitely for us. Cause you know, we're using, you know, I mean, a, to- a tomato is a tomato. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there are better qualities, obviously like we, we were actually having more trouble with you with uh, the other distributors. Um, like our guacamole was kind of not as great at first because that's t- really defined by the avocados. And sometimes it's hard to get ripe and ready avocados. So, but yeah. you know, it, it took about a month, but we ended up finding getting the product and getting it allocated to us. Now you guys were robbed too, weren't you? Is there a story uh, behind that? Yeah, but I, I don't really want to get into that, Okay, but it, it, it wasn't a big thing. It was just like a, you know, employee that, Oh, um, saw an opportunity and took some money. No, oh, that's too so, bad. I mean, it, it's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I know you don't want to talk about it, but like, what can we do to prevent that? Oh yeah. I mean, you, you take away the opportunity at all. What was the, opportunity? so I mean, it, it, was, it was ultimately just a manager that, um, was new and was doing their end of night checkout and collecting money and left, you know, some of the money on 
on a table for one second and someone called them and they went to go do something. And that wasn't what we had in our system. And, you know, we talked to her and we're just like, Hey, like when you're dealing with cash, you go downstairs, you count it, you put it in the safe and you close it and that's it. Yeah. So So, you just never, you can't trust people basically, which is too bad that you can't like, it blows my mind, dude. I, I can't imagine seeing a stack of cash on a table and going, I'm going to take that from people that I'm employed by people I know. Yeah. I, I mean, it was, it was shocking for us too. So anyway, like you said, you didn't want to talk about it. Here I am talking about it. <laughs> um, so any other lessons that are, were new to you in the past couple of years since we last talked? Um, nothing really like brand new. I mean, like, uh, I, I definitely learned to, uh, stick to, uh, my guns a little bit more and like, we already know what works. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always down to try new things. Um, but a lot of times we'll try something new and we're like, ah, no, the old way we had it was better. So, um, I think that there's a balance to be found with that. Like there's, you want to grow, you always want to be changing. You always want to be growing. Right. But at the same time, like, so give me an example of where like you didn't stick to your guns. Um, I mean, kind of like what I said about like the group chat thing, like we always yeah. knew that was great and it was super useful for us. Um, also our, um, and the big thing on that actually is like, you know, we have checklists, so we use our checklist, you know, for all the time. I mean, that's how they fly planes and that's how they build buildings. So they obviously work. Um, and we use them in a restaurant. And when we, we just, we opened so fast because it took us so long to open and we were waiting for everything that we just kind of had to get out of it for financial reasons and all that. Yeah. I know when you first were on the show, you said that when you started with your checklist, you just had a spreadsheet. Are you still using spreadsheets or is there? Yeah. Yeah. I, so, you hey. know, there's tools out there. I don't know if they're 100% necessary all the time. Um, if you have multiple locations and you want to make sure things are getting done, I think the apps are great because you get those push notifications to let you know where every location's at in their daily checklists, which is nice if you're managing multiple locations. Yeah, can- I mean, I've, I've heard I've heard mixed reviews about them. I, yeah. There's some people that swear by them. Um, but that's, I mean, that's kind of like the one thing I, 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 I learned is like pen and paper is king. Even for me, like, you know, when I got a lot of business stuff, like I, I have, you know, I have the note app on my phone and I use it, but I still find it more useful for me to create like a paper list. Well, they say something about like memory. Like if you write something down, there's like, it's, there's like science that supports it. It sticks. Actually, I think that's a big part of it. So like, you know, we don't let our staff write a check mark on the checklist. They have to sign their initials. So it's kind of like a thing of pride and honesty that when you're doing it, you're like, I did that. Yeah. Well, also if if you did that and it didn't get done well, then right? We, then we can go now you know it. exactly who to go to. Be like, hey, like, thanks for doing that. Here's how it's supposed to be done. Yeah, <laughs> like, and the, I mean, the apps are great. There's a lot of things that are super useful, but I think you know, there there was one point you know where we because we are growing and we wanted to see the things that we can kind of like streamline. So we were taking on more of those apps. Um, like we had there was this training app that we used for a little bit, and th- those were the things that we got rid of. Was that Margin Edge? Uh, no, 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 we, um, we actually switched to extra chef, um, same kind of thing that's useful, but it was this thing called Yelly and it's like just a test that servers can take or whatever. And we thought it wasn't kind of important for, did you hear about that through the podcast? Yelly? Yeah. Danielle, I think is the the, the lady behind Yelly. No, I was, I mean, maybe our GM did it. She kind of brought it up and she, she thought it would be a really great idea to do with, um, you know, having college kids go away. You know, that, that is kind of one of our little not a struggle we've had, but like during Christmas break. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so we had like a huge drop off in sales because you had 80% of the town that was gone. Yeah. 
and 80% of your employees are gone. But them coming back, like our drinks are complicated and not necessarily easy to make. And if you don't make them all the time, you might like get, get a little recipe. fuzzy on the recipes. Yeah. So, you know, we had Yelly to kind of like keep all our staff up on it. Yeah. And, you know, our current test is a blank piece of paper. <laughs> and they know what they're supposed to write. And I say write it all. Yeah. And I still think that's king. And that's probably what it'll stay. Yeah. And it's kind of easier to manage. Mm-hmm. You know? Interesting. Uh, there is a company out of Newark right now, or New, New Jersey, Jersey City, Jersey City, that's training, and they're doing it. I just had them on the show, One Huddle, um, and they're doing it in a way that, uh, like, it's like traditionally you get a packet of like the company history, and like you're responsible for reading all that, and then you take a test, and then you got to pass the test. Mm-hmm. Their approach is like, here's the test. What do you think the answer is? And like you've never been introduced to the material before, so it's like a multiple choice. Like it's one of these. You have a twenty five percent chance of getting it right. Then you take the test, and then they oh you got like a five out of five, you know, and it's like a crap. Like but then you have to take it again until you get a hundred percent. So the whole idea behind it is like you there's something that that's proven that things are more sticky if you just if you just take the test instead of going through and memorizing a bunch of information. We just want you to know the answer. Right. Yeah. Like really as when you're out talking to people, they're going to ask you a question. You don't need to know the paragraph history of the company. You need to know the answer to this question. And for some reason, when you, when you train people like that, it sticks so much better. Yeah. Just I mean, having people take the test. That's essentially what we do. Yeah. Like I give them the test. I, I mean, I've been known to give our cocktail test three times in a row back to back, but it sticks. Yeah, it sticks. And yeah. I mean, you know, we, I think we talked about this last time, but, uh, you know, I gamify it. So what so, is yeah? Take us through your process. What does it look like? For the cocktails? Yeah, for the, the testing. And like, <clears throat> so you just, it's just literally a piece of paper and a pen? I literally just take printer paper and hand it to everyone. Yeah. And they have to, well, there's, there's stages to it. Like, I don't just throw it all on that first. The first time I'll give them all the drink names. And then, you know, we have a format called the quick sheet for all the recipes. That is just kind of like a quick hand that we do. Um, with like different symbols or whatever for shaking and stirring and things yeah. like that. And I'll give them all the cocktails and then they have 10 minutes to write it all out. And their first time getting it, no one ever passes, you know? And I wouldn't that, be good at that. I've never been good at like, But really everyone good. eventually passes. Yeah. So it's just like taking practice and then like, you know, they figure out different ways to write it and faster. So it kind of, beca- you know, it kind of like brings the team together. Yeah. Um, and then there is a competition aspect in it because I tell them, I was like, well, previously, actually, the best time ever was like six minutes and 30 seconds to get like a perfect score and yeah. do it in that. And this this time around, someone got like 430. So so the gamification element of this is timing them in order. So like here's the, the test. Write down all the ingredients you and like we're timing you. Yeah. And that's the gamification part of it. Who can who can write it down the fastest? Yeah. And we don't even really give anything specific for the best time at just a high five yeah <laughs> <laughs> but that i think that's even better when someone cares about yeah. the concept that more that they just to just want to be good for the sake of being yeah. good and you it's funny that you mentioned that because one huddle does the same they they use gamification in their process too so they they have everybody they have access to, so this is through an app right so they have the data on the, the people taking the test and how long it took them to take the test and how long it took them to get a 100 percent, and then you get to see your score against everybody else in the company uh, through the app, like who's doing the best. So like it, it, that little bit of like comparing yourself to others has so, so much, like we don't want to be the worst. Like yeah. when we start seeing how we compare ourselves to others, we're constantly comparing ourselves to others. Like that, that level of gamification is super powerful. Yeah. And what we do that, I still have it for, I have a huge spreadsheet of everyone's cocktail time for every cocktail. 
Yeah. So I time every one single drink and you know, it, it really doesn't make a huge difference to me as someone gets a minute and one in a minute and two seconds for a drink. But to them, it's the world. And I mean, I, I, I get into it too. Like they'll always, have, they'll the last like, time I was here, we broke a record. Huh? Do you remember that? We, we yeah, recorded. That, yeah. That record still stands. Does it? What is it? <laughs> that one uh, it's the, for the gardener's margarita. Yeah. Do you remember what the time is? On? So yeah, 54 seconds 54 and like seconds. 55 milliseconds. Maybe and some will he beat me by today. five milliseconds. Oh, I had the previous he record. You. Yeah. That's rough, man. Sorry. No, it makes me proud. <laughs> I'd rather be a better teacher than, uh, yeah. <laughs> than anything funny. else. Um, I mean, there's so many things we could talk about the gamification and one huddle and the training. Uh, did you go? Did you finish going through your process of what that what what you do to train? Like, so you give them the paper, they write down the ingredients, they get timed on it. Uh, anything up beyond that? Oh, I mean, there's tons of coaching along the way. You know, that's a key word right there, coaching. And I think, like, I, I grade the tests like with them right next to me and go through each one, and then whenever they get one wrong, I kind of explain like how I would think about it, like this is the flavor of the drink. So you got to think about, you know, if we're putting this ingredient in it and we want it to all be balanced, we had to pull back on something else. Yeah. Um, what do you, I mean, what, what is your knowledge based on coaching? Like, are you, would you consider yourself some, a good coach? Do you do a lot? Of yeah. That's my favorite part of the business. And I think that's probably my biggest strength is training people. Like any, anyone that comes into SoCal to become a bartender, they, they fall in love with the drinks and they fall in love with learning. And, you know, I, I always, I'm an open book. So I was like, if you think something we're doing isn't right or you think you have a better way, bring it up and we'll talk about it. Yeah. Cause I don't ever want a bartender to be like, this guy's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing. I sometimes wonder, I wouldn't be surprised if in the near future with people using different terms to, ex- to identify titles and stuff, if the word manager goes away and the word coach starts to come up because of the language we're using, especially around like, like, a, like what it, the best managers are coaches. You know, like they manage to make sure the job is being done right. But really what they're doing is they're coaching up their staff. They're constantly coaching. They're constantly making their people better. Yeah. But I, I at a certain point, the coaching, not that the coaching's over, but it takes a backstop because you need someone that kind of sees all their chess pieces and is making the restaurant work in the way it's working. Yeah. I see that. So what so, makes they're, you, they're, they're both. What you, makes you a, good, a great coach? What are the elements about Leo that makes them like the, the best thing that you do? Oh, I mean, first off, I, I, I want everyone to exceed and excel. Like I, like I, like you said, like I was not mad at all that someone beat my record that made me happy, you know, so to really want for that to happen, um, to have a free flow of information, to not hold anything back at all. So no ego, no ego to be really upfront and, um, and also how you deliver stuff. Like I never want anyone to feel like they're inadequate or they don't, you know, and it's hard to do cause they're learning some stuff. So a lot of times, like when I train, my staff will be like, they'll be really nervous about me, but at least I feel like it's more nervous because they want to do a good job and impress me. Mm. Not because they're actually scared of what I would say, mm. you know? So I want to disappoint you. Yeah. You got to make it comfortable where it's okay to fail. Mm. And you know, everyone's going to learn things at different times and you know, it might change down the road if, when we grow more, but I don't think so. I think I'll, I'll always take that time with each individual person. Yeah. If someone wants to learn, I want to teach them. Yeah. Um, so one more, unless there's any other advice around coaching before you move on. Um, I mean, yeah, you, you got to make it fun. How do you do that? So I think, I think gamifying it makes a good thing. Just, um, and a simple thing that you do to gamify is just keep a record of times. Yeah. And then you get, you, you give, you give praise whenever it's there. Where do you keep the records you know? of your records? Uh, I just, I just have it on a spreadsheet on Google. Okay. Is it public? Do, do huh? people like see, like, can like, is it like, no. Okay. So you just 
because I don't, uh, you know, like we've had staff, uh, like managers before that, you know, you, I give them all camera access so they can look at it, but sometimes yeah. it eats them away and they're just looking all the time. Yeah. So it's not, it's only important for them to learn the drinks. And then after that, you know, yeah. and then every once in a while we'll do, like if I do a training, I always, I tell all of our staff and like, Hey, come in. You, I, you don't have to, but I would like everyone to come in for one day mm-hmm. and I'll be like, you can pick one time and we can fix that time. Okay. You know, cause they know like any, anytime I do another training, like we just did another training with uh, three new bartenders and they all asked, they're like, well, who has the best, you know, skinny sumo time? You know, so what, what is, why is the emphasis on time? Why is that so important for you? Why do you choose time as being the most important element to measure? Well, it's, it's not the most important is a perfect drink because if it's not perfect, the time doesn't count. Yeah. So the, it's just doing the, the, the best job in the least amount of time. But the time matters because if someone gets their drink in 20 minutes, you know, doesn't well, matter how good it is. And for a business, like we're only open so much time. Yeah. So they have to be able to crank out. It's about throughput. The more, the more drinks you can make in that given time, the more money. You're yeah. I, I want them to be as efficient as I, possible. It was a really obvious answer, but like it doesn't on like, like why is that such an important thing to manage? Cause if you make somebody so focused on like how about throughput, it's about the volume, especially in the, the, the bar business. It's about how many drinks can you make? Yeah. Cause people are going to continue to order drinks as long as you're, able to make them right yep um okay one more quick break to thank our sponsors we'll be right back to talk about the future what your plans what your vision for the future is recently on the show you've been hearing it come up often restaurant systems pro if you've become interested i highly recommend you sign up for the restaurant system pro 60 day pilot program this is something that's never been done before this 60 day event is at no cost to you but it's not for everyone Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. Recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time, these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. P. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. We're back. Um, so what's the future like, man? Like, what, What's your vision for SoCal Cantina? Yeah, so, um, you know, the, the Alabama project was really making sure that we could open in a different market. Does this have legs? Does this have legs? Yeah. And, and can we get it up and running on its own with a GM slash managing partner? And step away and still have it keep up the quality. Yeah. Well, we know tacos have legs. There's been tons of people who've been able to scale like Bar Taco. Uh, there's, I mean, I talked to a lot of Velo Taco. Um, 
tacos have legs. Yeah. They, they definitely scale. And there's a million different ways you can do it. So you can you can be different. And I think one of the ways that you're differ, differentiating is you're not putting – I mean, your tacos are amazing, but you're also elevating the drink portion of – Yeah. Like the drink isn't secondary. No, not at all. I would say it's it's – primary and the, the talk i hate to call your tacos secondary but it sounds like your focus your background is in drinks yeah that's your passion yeah we could argue that um i i, I would say that with um what we've seen in tuscaloosa that you know we, we started as a cantina where we were more of a bar atmosphere yeah and it was but now i can see that it's probably more like 50 50 yeah um which is great um and you know it opens the door to more people because like in brickle we're more of a you know 21 and up and then in Tuscaloosa, it's more like 18 and up. So and we even get some families. Like we yeah. used to be all against high chairs because that's not like the vibe we want. And Different we're going to buy a high chair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> lots of, uh, lots of families in the country. You know what I mean? Like when you get out of Miami, it's, it's less about that party scene and more about like, can the whole family come? Right? Yeah, exactly. And then, so what, what we've been doing with, uh, Tuscaloosa is making sure that our opening book and everything is tight. And from what we've seen, like, you know, I said, we, we tried a few new things to see what it was. Cause I really, that we really wanted to use this as a testing ground to see is everything that we're doing the best for our business. And so now we've kind of been able to fine tune that. So the next, you know, the next one that we open, I, I think it's not, I mean, it's not going to run without a hitch cause it's, you know, it's a complicated business and there's yeah. always things you got to adjust, but I think we're going to be able to open, you know, me and my partner were there together and we opened it together. I think the next couple will be able to open independently if we needed to. Yeah. Um, so what's, what are the biggest differences you've made in the new, in the, the new opening? You talked about being more approachable for different, a different demographic, uh, more, more, more just like fine tuning and solidifying like that, our resolve, like this is exactly how we want to do it. Okay. You know, like with, with our training and stuff like that, you know, like yeah. we actually, so, you know, because the build out took so long and like we even had a couple of surprises at the very end where our kitchen wasn't, we had to get a little more work done on it before we could use it. So we came up with uh, a, a, a kitchen that we built with construction paper and we had all of our, our kitchen staff building construction paper tacos. <laughs> um, that reminds me, dude, I think we, we had Paul Tunerman on the show and they built an entire kitchen out of cardboard boxes. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Just to like Man. figure out where things go. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Kind of like uh, from founder where yeah. they're on the tennis court or whatever. Yeah. yeah. But th- this was more just like writing the ingredients and getting colored paper so they could build the tacos because, you know, um, our kitchen is similar to the bar and where like when you're making a taco, you're making all these different moves and proportions on a taco are so important. Mm-hmm. You know, you can put all the same stuff on it, but if there's too much cheese or, you know, and there's certain things that you can't quite portion because you have to spread it throughout with yeah. your fingers. Um, that the taco just falls apart. So mm. we kind of created that with this construction paper. So when they did get in the kitchen, they were two days ahead of where they would have been if we didn't do that. Got it. Got it. Um, so you said you wanted your opening book to be tight. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I just, I wanted to make sure that this was the best way to do everything. So I left so, everything. Oh, when you say your opening book, you mean like your playbook for opening restaurants? Yeah, exactly. Got it, got like it. how to get it done. So it's kind of just like a cut and paste kind of situation like you know because our our goal is to you know we want to open one in in vegas austin and then we'll open in the other uh and then we'll open two in each of those markets like two more in miami as well um and then after and then we we plan on franchising too yeah uh so the future um how many how many socal cantinas do you see in like 10 years 
that I own directly, probably 15. 15. And then the rest would be franchised. When do you think is a good time to start franchising? That is a great question. Um, we actually have someone that's interested right now um, in, in Huntsville, Alabama. And um, our restaurant supply guy is going to introduce us to them. So that'll kind of be like the testing round. But, you know, I'm I'm pretty green on franchising. So I, I still got to do the work to, to really learn that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, and I, I know there's, there's a whole other slew of problems and issues, but it's also like, you know, I, how much of the build out are we responsible for and all that. So is it more of a coaching or doing job? So I got to learn all that. I see people try to franchise way too soon all the time. They'll have like one or two locations and then those two locations will be like in an area and then they'll like go open another one across the country. Why is that a bad thing to do? I mean, just, uh, it just pulls your time and yeah. you know, it, it, uh, if it, if it takes, if you don't have a tight opening book and this is mostly in theory cause I haven't done it yet. Um, but I would, you know, it pulls you back there cause you want it to be successful, but if it's across the country, you're spending so much time on travel back and forth that it yeah. kind of just eats away and it's taking up all your time for a fraction of what you would normally make if you owned it outright. Yeah. I mean, you know, cause you're making what five to 8% of the sales where that's, so that's about 25% of what you made if you just owned it outright. Yeah. Um, so you really need to make sure that you find a very competent operator and owner that doesn't need that kind of stuff from you. And why, what, why 15 is like the, 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 the I guess the, not the secret number, but the special number for you. Why is that the sweet spot for you? I mean, we're not going to wait till we have 15 in franchise. It's just how many I see. Yeah. Um, just cause I'm only one person. Yeah. I mean, I have my business partner too, but I, I, and you know, I don't, I, I think there's only so much that you can do and still be happy. So I think if I have those in those, you know, four or five States and I work on that and then I open the book to franchise. And plus my favorite part of this job is, is the coaching and the, know, the training and yeah. the opening. Yeah. So I would rather be able to focus on that. And you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of restaurant tours out there that open stuff and like they just, don't necessarily have a tight, great concept that has all those bells and whistles, you know, like not everyone has the create the, the creative genes to get that going. And I think we have it. And I think our food and our drink deserves to be, you know, served everywhere. And if I can create careers and, you know, jobs for more people, why would I not want to do that? Yeah. I love and that. Our pe- and our staff loves working for us. So, and I know that's not the case for every restaurant. So I think we have something special and I want to share that with as many people as possible. What is it that you have that's special? What is it about the culture that makes people love to work for you? I mean, I, I think it's how much we care about our food and drinks is where it starts. I think it's how me and my business partner and our managers handle problems. You know, none of our staff is ever scared to, to, to mess up and they all want to, you know, we really empower them to, to do what they want to be able to do. And we, we, and also by opening more of these franchises and more of our own locations, I'm also giving an opportunity for the people that are really excelling in our business to excel on a grander scale of this, you yeah. know, like nothing makes me happy. Like, uh, our kitchen manager here is really awesome. Um, and he, uh, we actually, when we first opened, we flew him up to help us out to get the kitchen and train everyone. And it was helpful for us, but it was also showed all of our staff that, we were telling the truth when we were like, Hey, like we plan on opening more and there's going to be opportunities for all of you. And he was, he would tell the staff, he's like, Hey, like they weren't lying. Like, look at this. They're flying me out to Alabama. Yeah. I'm going to go be like the head haunter there for a couple of days and train everyone. And you know, that's a, you know, I, I remember my first time when I was in a position to do that. Like it's super exciting 
when you're like something you've done for a couple of years and you're like, oh man, maybe I, maybe I am an expert. Maybe I do have like information to give. So what is your strategy to scale that secret sauce of caring of, of putting the, the, the emphasis on the quality and the standards and the, uh, caring about your people, coaching room for growth. How do you, how do you scale that? Um, I mean, I, I, I don't think you can necessarily scale that like 10 locations in one day, you know, um, I'll find out those answers as I do them. Um, but I do think it trickles from the down and I think I'm pretty upfront and honest with people and I really do want them to excel. And, you know, I'm, I give my number to everyone. Like they can call me with any problem, no matter how small, how big. Yeah. I think the secret to scaling that is what you just literally said is, is, um, I think people, what gets, what's, what gets people in trouble when they scale is they're more, they're more concerned about scaling being first to market and getting out fast. Uh, and then they don't have the people, the support system, the, to support it. You know, they don't, they don't have like, they don't have the culture to support it. Um, but when you grow from within and you use those other outlets as opportunities for your current people to go and do better things, those are your culture carriers. They came through the system. Like they are the, the, the extension of that. Um, you're shaking your head. What's what are you thinking? Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely agree. You know, that was kind of what we thought, you know, I actually mentioned this to my partner. I was like, Hey, like we have a great team in Miami and some of them are ready to grow. We, we, we almost let our own growth decide our growth. Right. Yeah. Cause I was like, we have people that are like excelling and like, they want to do more. Now's the time to open because we have people to fit those roles and they've already worked with us for so long. So they know how, how yeah. to do things. Yeah. As, Culture opposed, and cash as opposed to just opening five locations and hiring five managers and hiring five chefs. That's when you're going to have all these like, you know, loopholes and things that don't really meet that's the when standards people steal. that you want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry brought it up again um but so anything we haven't as far as the future what about the future of the industry like how are you looking to evolve what you're doing where do you think the industry is going what's the future of restaurants look like in your opinion oh man that's a loaded question i think um right now i would say it's kind of like excelling at more like you know and i've said this too with like the newer generations is they'll pay more for an experience Right. So they'll almost overpay for some food and drinks and stuff because it's like they'll go for that super wow factor. I think that it's going to kind of go back a little bit to people just wanting good classic food and drinks in a cool environment. And it's not going to have, you know, you're not really necessarily going to have to have caviar on everything. You Bubbles know? of smoke. Yeah, exactly. I, th- <laughs> I, I think it's going to start to go a little bit more to substance. I 100% agree. It's, it's funny because I almost brought that up as an example earlier today. Um, I think there's so much emphasis right now on shock and awe and trying to be different and juxtapose and just like stand out from other people, other competition. And I saw this, this meme recently. Uh, I think it was like one of the marketers in my network says like, it was basically like you have to do crazy wild things that like it was literally the bubble like landing on the, the drink that I was like, if you're not doing this, you're going to fail. And I'm like, that's not true. Yeah, I could disagree with that so much. Like, that's not true. People don't give a fuck about the bubble after they've seen it the second time. It's cool once. That might work in Miami where you're doing one thing that's like so cool that people from around the world want to come see it during their experience in Miami. But in most markets, that won't sustain you. Yeah. Because they're going to see it once and never come back. Yes. And like, that's kind of like, that's why I think Soka has such legs to grow because like, we take so much care in our lime juice and our simple syrup. Like we use, we have some specific tricks to make it super consistent and really make it pop where it might just, it's still a beautiful tight, cool little looking drink and they're gorgeous. But like 
it doesn't have any, it doesn't have an air bubble smoke. Like I don't, I don't do anything without substance. So like we do have some shock and all stuff. Like we do a SoCal special, which has like a cool SoCal foam. Yeah. It almost looks like a, like a dairy queen, like whipped cream on top, but it, it makes the drink amazing. Yeah. We don't just do it for that where that bubble is like glycerin and some other stuff in it. It's not like real flavor. It's just like a scent and that's like, and it just goes on top of the drink and it takes extra time and then it pops. I'm like, for what? <laughs> it doesn't change the actual substance of the drink. And ultimately most people that come here are having four margaritas. Yeah. I don't think they would care about having four smoke bubbles. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you for know? the first one. And then yeah. after that, it's the same drink. And, and I think, you know, like I said, we look for a place that's like 70% locals because our food is addicting and that, and it's the type of food you can eat four times a week. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of these other restaurants that are, they're doing really cool stuff and I'm glad they do it because it's exciting. But yeah, you know, and my, my brother lives in San Francisco and he has, um, he works on other restaurants and designing them and he'll show me all the stuff they're doing. And, and it, in order to survive in San Francisco, you have to charge a certain amount of money for your food, right? Because the rent there is so crazy. Um, but that's, I'm glad they do that stuff because I can pick and choose of it. But that stuff wouldn't work in a lot of other cities. You know, yeah. like kind of like what I was saying, if you if you opened a really high-end club restaurant in, you know, the middle of Iowa or something, like it probably wouldn't do well because the price point and substance isn't there. Yeah. So uh, I was actually talking to this about this with Sam yesterday when we got into Miami for the first time. I was telling him about this new book that I'm reading called uh, Team Human. And um, I, I, I personally believe the future of the industry um, where or just the future in general is so right now I feel like the world is optimized for the digital products that we use. Basically like we all exist to serve Instagram, Facebook, and Google. Like we, like we literally react to what those platforms tell us we have to do. Everything we do is, an, is to be optimized to like an, an algorithm. Right. And I think that that is so unhuman that we're starting to realize just how unhuman that is, how, how like this, unhappy that makes us when everything that we do is to to appease an algorithm or a best practice or to get a like or to build a number right um that we're gonna reach a point where everyone's just so miserable so unhappy because we exist to serve machines that we're gonna go wait we don't fucking need the machines yeah like what we need is each other and what we need is to like lean into this idea of what it means to be human and i think once people figure that out and if they can make people feel human again then people are going to start going to your restaurant all the time because they, we, we live in a world where we're just, we don't have a lot of that. Like we, we don't live in the same world we did a hundred, 200 years ago, which is, there's a lot of benefits to technology. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying technology is going away. I'm saying our relationship with technology is going to evolve as we realize that. Yeah. Like it's, I think, I think it's going to take a little bit of a, a backseat to a degree, but you know, kind of what I was saying before I was like, I, I'm glad they do all those crazy food techniques and stuff everywhere. But and like there was a spur of molecular gastronomy, like I, I want to say it was like ten years ago, and there's all these restaurants that only did that that opened, and most of them closed, but a few of those techniques lived on, mm-hmm. right? Because people picked and choose. They're like, oh, there's an actual use for this, and it makes the it actually makes this dish better. Yeah. So let's use that or and, more efficient, like sous vide, for example. Yeah. Like exactly. we can cook this much faster with less energy, and it tastes better. Like it, why wouldn't we do this? All exactly. Time? So yeah. I think there there's going to be a time where we're like, okay, right now we're in like the discovery phase where everyone's just doing everything to be like wowed, and then eventually they're going to be like, okay, of all that stuff we created, what is actually useful and do people actually want? Yeah. So where how does this translate to the world of like 
the your world? Like, what is this? What what is the discovery phase right now? What's happening with with the bars? Is it the bubbles and all this crazy like next level bartending that's happening out there? Yeah, there's that. The you know there's all these new techniques to make new different syrups. Um, you know, like clarified milk punches are getting to be a little bit bigger, which that would be something that I'm I'm cool with because. I love clarified milk punches. They're awesome. Um, But I don't think, I don't think that bubble gun is going to be a thing that everyone uses. Mm. You know, I think that company is probably going to sell a few of them to some main hotels and places that really work like LA and Miami. But I, that's not going to be in every sports bar. Yeah. Is there something that if, if you could change anything about our industry, like a standard for our industry that you think needs to go, what would that be? Something that we could do just to make the industry better. If we just stop doing this one thing. Raising food prices, eggs are like a dollar a piece right now. <laughs> you know, that's a weird one. Um, what, why do you say that? I mean, obviously, like cost of goods is getting hard. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that's just like a, a joke as a business thing. Yeah. But I, I can't really think of like one specific thing because there's just so much out there. But I think kind of what we were talking about where they, people need to go back to like go back to home and really just be making really good food and like create like being more human. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more of that. Um, so before we say goodbye, um, I'm curious as somebody who's spent a lot of their life in Miami, where are you from originally? Uh, Palmetto Bay, which is like a suburb of Miami. Oh, okay. Got it. Uh, are there any like artisans around here? People doing cool stuff, things we need to see while we're in Miami people just like, even for like our YouTube channel, just like the link up with for like 10 minutes, like a, like a maker, whether it's, I don't know, something adjacent to the bar industry. Yeah. Well, um, I'd have to think about it cause I've been in Alabama the last eight months. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, and Miami is a fast moving city with a lot of things changing all the yeah. time. So I'll, I mean, I'll have to think and ask around. I know there's been, you know, restaurant wise, there's been a huge, you know, influx of restaurants coming in that are really great. Um, but aside from that, I'm, I, to be honest, I'm not, I've literally been here for four days. Right. What I'm about people that are just like doing cool stuff? Like not, not necessarily bartenders or, uh, bars, but like, I don't know, people who are maybe making bitters or something like that. Like any craftsmen. I mean, I, I, I don't really pay a, a ton of attention to yeah. that. Cause I, I like for our, for SoCal, I try to do everything in house to make sure no one can replicate stuff that we do. Like I don't buy products like uh, of anything like that. Yeah. Are you still using Barmetric? So, uh, yeah, we still use them here. Uh, yeah. They don't have a store up in Alabama, so we use a different program there. Okay. So how does that work? The Barmet is it? It's, it's a franchise, right? So somebody, ha- like I think Dave is your your yeah. representative, right? So he owns the the franchise that's the Barmetric franchise for Miami. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that work? Like, what's the pro? Like. They come in, they measure, they have the technology. Mm-hmm. And then they link it up with all of our, um, uh, they link it up to our POS system. So it tells us exactly what we're missing of everything. So we know exactly how much we sold and with what, what the order it came in. So it just gives you like a, you know, so like, you know, we were, we, we were missing like six bottles of Pacifico and we know exactly that number it is. Yeah. So, so it tells you what you need to order. Plus also if there's any, you can use in what you're selling, yeah, you can use it to do what the order is. I really just do it to make sure that our costs are in line and everything. Got it. I think I might try to connect with Dave while I'm out here to get more behind what's going on there. But anything that we did not bring up now's the time to get it out. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that kind of covers pretty much everything where we're going at Yeah. at this point. 
Beautiful. Leo, thank you so much, man, for taking time to reconnect with me. Um, this is something I want to do more of, uh, reconnecting with past guests to go deeper, uh, to pick up the conversation where we left off, to get more granular. You did that for us. Thank you. Uh, anybody um, that you want to call out, as now we're talking about restaurant owners or people that you aspire to be more like. Maybe it's in Miami. Maybe it's just greater across the country. Somebody that, as a listener of Restaurant Unstoppable, if you found out this person was on the show tomorrow, you'd be like, I want to listen to what this person has to say. Oh, yeah. I, I would listen to Kevin Danilo, the owner of Batch. Okay. Kevin Danilo, look, I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And uh, how can we connect with you if we have questions, if we want to continue the conversation? Yeah, you can uh, email me at leo at socal-taco.com or find me on Instagram at, at Cocktail Conjure and uh, just message me and I'd be happy to you know hear what you got to say or help you out if I can. Awesome. And I'm pretty sure this is episode 967 or 68. One of those two head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 967 or 968. And I'll bring you to the show notes of today's episode. Any tools or services that were recommended will be linked to over there as well as a summary of today's discussion and, and how to link up with Leo and Leo. Thank you so much, my man. There is no questioning. Actually, do, do did you share your email? You just did that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Share the email. Um, there is no questioning, my man. You are unstoppable. There's another episode wrapped up today here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Leo Holtzman, for coming on, uh, for getting even more personal than we did the first time around. And uh, I, I really want to do more episodes like this, getting past guests on the show, picking up where we left off, and just going deeper, uh, pulling back further on the layers, and just getting as granular as possible. And it's really not about how many relationships you have. It's not about the qual- the quantity of relationships. It's about the quality of relationships and, and going deeper, getting strategic and just building this network uh, of amazing restaurant tours that we can learn from and go into the future with. So uh, if you are finding value in this podcast and you want more like it, we need your support. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors. You can support our affiliates. Those are any of the tools or services that are recommended on the show, just head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash whatever the episode number is, and you'll find the links and summaries over there. Uh, you can also share this podcast with everyone you know in the restaurant industry who's aspiring to be great. This is an amazing resource for them, and we thank you in advance for sharing it. And you can come hang out in Restaurant Unstoppable Network. And one bit of exciting news before we wrap up today, Restaurant Unstoppable had its two best days Ever. Yesterday, we broke a record. We were at around 13,000 episodes, and I was so excited. And then the next day, the very next day, we cleared almost 20,000 downloads. And this is all because of you guys. Thank you so much for sharing this thing and for listening and showing up and supporting our show with your downloads. We literally cannot do it without you. And uh, right now, we, we're pretty sure this is because the backlog the, the backlog of Restaurant Unstoppable is now available on all major players. So you can go back to episode one. I don't recommend going back to episode one. (laughs) It's a little embarrassing. I've come a long way in nearly a thousand episodes, but there is some amazing backlog content that is waiting for you to listen. So go check that out. Thank you in advance. And we cannot say goodbye without saying thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Thank you to Jared Parisi at Sumadre Podcast for his copywriting and for his podcast editing. And thank you to Sam Hall over at SavInSam.com for his videography. Follow me around this country keeping me company and for all of his editing for the video as well in social media takes an army i'm grateful for mine that's it for today until next time peace out